We're joined with Cameron Murray from the University of Sydney. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here at the Sustainable Prosperity Conference. You just gave a bit of a talk about your book, Game of Mates, which is very informative. Well, we should probably start with something really straightforward for the listeners. Cameron, would you like to describe briefly the essence of Game of Mates so that people know why they should buy your book and listen to it or read it? (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Game of Mates is about how the game of political favouritism is played in Australia, how much it costs us and what we can do about it. And the reason for writing this is that I spent uh, four years doing a PhD at the University of Queensland looking at political favouritism, particularly in land rezoning decisions and mapping the social networks of landowners and really trying to unpick how the game is played, how influence arises. And I started looking at lots of different sectors of the economy and thought, gee, this is pretty insane. People should find out about this. So with my PhD supervisor, Paul Friders, we decided let's write a book that we can just help spread the word because there's a lot of misunderstanding about how political power is is wielded. People get obsessed by political donations and we found in our data on whether donations were effective that they weren't at all. They weren't really doing much of the work generating political favours. So we thought, look, there's a lot of groups out there in society who want to enact change and want to lobby for the broader social interests. They should be aware of how the game's played so they can navigate it better. Cameron, why do you think people weren't aware? Because human societies stay relatively consistent. You know, humans look after each other in this idea of game of mates. This is not a new idea. It can explain the creation in Rome from democratic to not democratic. It can sort of explain at the end of you know, the Roman civilization why we went into feudalism. Because someone always wants to rely on someone else and then there's a few people who become friends and they back each other and the power starts to coalesce, almost like a process of accretion. Yeah. Well, I think we've been trained, uh, and I, I sort of can point the finger at economics here in a little way, we've been trained to think of this atomistic individual behaviour and that politicians are these individual powerful people who respond to their individual market trades of donations for decisions. So there's a lot of myth-making around how people operate and how we make decisions. And we've sort of, in the economic discourse, we've painted over the social layer of uh, the networks of power and the relationships that are getting sustained between people. So I think a lot of you know community groups, they understand it's about who you know, not what you know. But when you need to discuss it, they don't really have a language to do it in yeah. that is not, you know, sounding a little bit crazy or, you know, too radical compared to the simple economic story of there is a powerful individual, they respond to donations because that's a purchase of a decision. So I think yeah, part of writing the book is to give people a language. So you can think about grey gifts is one of the terms we introduce, which is a a decision made politically that doesn't cost those decision makers but um, costs the rest of the community. So it's you know if I give you a Christmas present, that's, that's great, but I paid for it. Yeah. If I'm a politician and I rezone your land or give you a cushy deal, that's a gift economically to you that has value, but I didn't pay for it, someone else did. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you gifts on behalf of someone else. And so <laughs> we can start using that language and saying, well, What's, what's the problem in politics is that we're giving stuff that we own collectively to someone for free through this decision-making that these networks of people have really uh, stitched up. 
When you're doing the research for the book, you know, it very much seems like it's about developing a better conception of how power works and a better language of power. Did you, you know, read and apply much sort of Michel Foucault, you know, to your research? You know, when he did all the work in the eighties about how modern power structures came to be and how modern humans have been domesticated to the point of docility that means they will accept this level of nepotism and corruption and not really see the truth behind it. No, not at all. I don't. I don't know if the grand theory is that useful. Rather than the sort of micro, this is how it is being sustained. These are the myths that people in power tell others to sustain their power. I mean, the, the story is age old, and we do, mm. we do mention. There's nothing really new about the book, but we're sort of updating the thinking for modern Australia with contemporary examples. We get to calculate the cost of different decisions, and we can name who these people are in these networks. And we can give you the modern language to do it. So we don't, you know, we don't claim that uh, everything is new, but we do sort of try and inject some energy into the contemporary discussion with some some language that should be really effective. It sounds like it's informative. It's actually almost an instruction booklet. In, I know you said <laughs> that it wasn't. It's an instruction booklet in the sense of this is what we should be fighting against, quite mm. uh, quite literally. So it's it is a, a guide on the very specific issues in that sense that yeah. on which people should be fighting back yeah, on as so opposed could, to an explanatory thread about how we kind of no it's not a, yeah and it, a lot of it I do get into the details on all sorts of stuff like on which page of what legislation does the pharmacy guild seem to uh, have exercised their power to protect pharmacies from competition from supermarkets and how much does that cost and. What myths do they tell to cover their tracks and why is that hypocritical because, you know, they've, they've had cases against them for selling, you know, nutrition supplements with no evidence, uh, you know, upselling this stuff and yet their argument for being protected from competition is that, oh, the supermarkets would just upsell things with no medical evidence. I'm yeah. like, well, hang on a minute, you just did this multi-million dollar deal with Blackmores to upsell their nonsense. Sorry, you obviously don't believe this story that you're telling. This is just economic protection for your you know, mm. network. So it's really about trying to shine a light on the sort of endemic hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. And, and really the details of each part. Like, you know, I think a lot of people know there's some dodgy stuff going on but don't know how to fix it. So where, where is the cooling off period for politicians sitting on boards of companies? And what does that clause do? How is it enforced? How could we broaden it and enforce it in a way that works? Which institution would enforce it? How would you employ people in that institution that weren't already corrupted? I mean, that's one of the big problems we saw in the financial, the Banking Royal Commission is that there's really little incentive if you are a financial regulator to take up a big case against a bank when most of your staff want to get a cushy job at that bank. Yeah, the reality so, is that, the, and again, I think yeah, you used the word corruption, then I'm going to change the word, I'm going to use co-option. Yeah, because when yeah, you used a wonderful example of your students, you know, where you did the thing of, okay, let's play this financial game as a, an exercise to understand how people function. And what you were saying is that essentially people started looking after their friends. Yeah. So you very quickly become co-opted. Now, again, this is not a new idea. The classic writing on this is Antonio Gramsci from the 1920s where he said, okay, if you're potentially smart or dangerous, power will co-opt you. Yeah. It will find a way to get you inside yep. the mateship as fast as possible. Yeah. yeah. Funny you should say that. I've been waiting for some cushy job offers from insiders to keep me quiet. Um, but I, they haven't been, uh, they haven't emerged yet, unfortunately. But that's, that's something I would expect to happen. You're totally right. Yeah, as you were talking today, my first thought was okay, you know, someone asked Cameron as a question, you know, is he in danger? 
And I turned around to Tim and said, no, he's already been co-opted. He's already working in a university. <laughs> Whether he knows it or not, yeah. he's already been put inside the system with all the limitations that come from having to get ethics approval, you know, do whatever's necessary to get the contract renewed or move down the tenure track. So it fits the classic model of co-option to have you somewhere safe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I got a two-year contract at the University of Sydney and it's a great – actually um, – have a bit of a uh, few cowboys in my group there in the Henry Halloran Trust. So, uh, um, but yeah, in the long run, that's what happens. You're totally yeah, right. People you, get the cushy job. They get kept quiet. They get distracted with other things. They get a taster. Yeah. And out of so, the taster, they choose to change their own behaviour. That's right. To maintain the benefits. That's right. I'm totally aware of it. And yeah. I, I, I am thinking ahead of, uh, well, do I want to be a career academic and jump all the academic hoops? Is, is that going to change my thinking? Am I going to get mm. co-opted into standard acceptable ways of thinking? Mm. Should I somehow work out how to uh, be an independently funded thinker to avoid that co-option that you mentioned? It's, it's totally top of my mind. Well, I'm more, very aware. More importantly, it can just be to say, I know what the game is. In what way? Well, you understand the game. Yeah. You understand the co-option, which means it's less likely to happen. Because the classic uh, uh, thing with the literature on this is most people are so deep and then realise they're there. Yeah. The whole point Gramsci wrote yeah. of this was to understand, if you understand what's being done to you, take all the trinkets yeah. and do them over later. So, so you're right. There you go. That's, that's me in some ways. <laughs> well, you know, when you start your Patreon account, when you're going to be the independent thinker, let us know. Yeah. We'll, we'll let everyone know. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I, I'm always thinking ahead of how to put ideas out there. I'll give you an example right now. I'm probably the only person in the country who's willing to say that we should scrap the superannuation system altogether and give people their money back. I think this year, we're, well, sitting here this weekend with the MMT people, it would be one of the only places where there'd be people saying it for different reasons. Yeah. You'd be saying well, it because that money has largely maintained the, you know, the mates, whereas the people who would be saying because it's economically stupid. Yes, well, it just I, doesn't work. Yeah, I, I say both. And I, yeah. on, on their grounds as well. Although, yeah. funny you should say that, I haven't found that many supporters here. I was hoping to find a few. But you'll... Uh, yeah, so my plan this year is to uh, say something no one said uh, in public and make it acceptable in the media to, to talk about the option of just giving people their money and letting them spend their own money. I mean, it sounds pretty sensible when you say it like that. Yeah. But we're in this crazy position where the Labor Party's lobbying to let people not spend their own money and give it to the financial sector to cream off $36 billion a year. Yeah, but I think uh, if, if we so look back to the creation of superannuation under Keating, there were such big plans for what super was meant to do with a newly reformed neoliberal economy where no one understood yet that the ideas unleashed by Hawke and Keating would eventually cause the zombie economy we're in now. I don't think anyone knew what they were doing. No. I don't think there was much foresight in it altogether. Well, it was just have... a political trade-off at the time yeah. that seemed to work, and now we've, we're sort of stuck with this. It's just grown in yeah. the, uh, behind closed doors. And now all of a sudden, people are like, oh, we don't have any money, and you want us to give us more of our wages to yeah. these bankers? I mean, there are just as many people working in superannuation sitting on the computer on spreadsheets, trading the same BHP shares back and forth with each other than there are in the whole Australian military. Yeah. Well, more importantly, they're not doing the trading the computers are because they're faster. So they're just so they're sort of there uh, taking each other out to lunch, yep. writing reports about how great they are at keeping an eye on financial markets. Yep. They're charging $36 billion for the pleasure, which is $3 billion more than the uh, whole military costs, including the public servants' administrators. Yep. 
And we think, yeah, that's totally fine use of resources. <laughs> so I, I don't know, it, it, it bamboozles me. But in terms of that, um, putting ideas out there that, that uh, you know, thinking outside the box and not being co-opted by the institutions, I'm trying to stay above it in my thinking. Yeah, keep speaking truth. And see if they still want to give you a paycheck. <laughs> Again, it's a great trick to, try, to play the game. of trying. You know, it's that wonderful Groucho Marx line. Would you want to be a part of any organisation that wants to have you as a member? Uh, well, yeah, I, I often think that. <laughs> yeah, one of your ideas you were talking about today sort of rubbed off on me too because I've, I've been thinking about writing about this and that is you are only talking about potentially scrapping an upper house in most parliaments or creating, you know, a, you get a letter in the mail. I just call it a random selection. Yeah. Just randomly sending people a letter saying, hi, you're now in the parliament. Yeah. Sounds like an awesome idea to start yeah. breaking this up. But then, yeah, you talked about the same problem that I've got stuck at too, is then you realise it's the advisors who will become the mates. Yeah, so it's called sortition, right? And it, I think the ancient Greeks had it, but of course you had to be a land-owning wealthy yeah. person and then you got randomly allocated to, to the Senate. Sit on a jury or sit on a decision um, or whatever right. you were doing. But I think we could just do it with every adult, just like we do for jury duty. Yeah. Um, and you can see the obvious parallels, right? So a jury is going to be co-opted co- co- very easily. If you're making the same decisions, every criminal gang in the country is going to um, you know, know where your family lives, know yep. where your kids go to school. Yep. They're going to have it over you and you're going to just be co-opted. So we randomise that. And we can certainly randomising decision makers is one of my big ideas mm. uh, for stopping this because, you know, you can't co-opt everyone. And if you can, then that's probably a good thing because everyone's making a decision in the joint interest. Yes, see, my variant of this I've been thinking about is, you know, get rid of states because that's a waste of a lot of money. Go to this as a federal system and just randomly choose 500 people every five years. Yeah, and then if five years, those 500 people can vote for 100 of those 500 to do another five years so you have more experience. Yeah. And to say that advisors can only ever advise to Parliament for 10 years. So that's the cooling off period idea. So, yeah. you know, there's the two term limits in the yeah. US. So if we have those things for um, accountants in Australia. So if you are auditing a company, you can't audit them for more than five years or three years or whatever it is. And then you have to go get a different auditor because obviously you're one of these overseers who can be co-opted by that organisation and yep. start lying on their behalf. Yep. But for politicians, we don't really have that. We have a cooling off period, which is very niche. It's very limited. It's for three years and it's for only... Uh, professional paid lobbyists mm. so that excludes all the industry groups all the lobbying all the consultants uh, only a specific set of professional lobbyists uh, of which there are a few you can sit directly on the board of BHP but you can't work or you can work for the minerals council but you can't be on uh, you know one of the lobbying companies that's a registered lobbyist mm. so that sort of cooling off period works in other areas uh, we can certainly apply it to politicians themselves and if we had some kind of sortition random parliament it would also have to apply to you know key legal advisors in the parliament and the idea would be to entrench some kind of system so that if you want to become a member of the queensland law society or new south wales law society you get extra credit if you do a couple of years in the parliament yeah you get as a, a young idealistic lawyer yeah. you do your stint and then you come back yeah it gets you your credibility that's right. it's almost a john heinlein idea in starship troopers of if you do your time you get your rights yeah so there's the sorts of mechanisms you need to entrench and people go, people then come up with stories. Oh, it's really cumbersome. We have to brief all these new people. It doesn't make sense, right? So it will work for quite a while, but don't think that it will work forever. Uh, these, these things come in cycles yeah, and every system gets gained. Your system. 
Yeah. Every system gets gamed and you can see eventually that, you know, those hundred that were re-elected in your proposal for the next round will go, oh, it's so difficult working with these new senators. Let's re-elect 300 or, and yeah. let's, and eventually, oh, and these advisors, I need my old advisor back. Yep. Let's t- loosen that c- criteria yep. and eventually all systems consolidate power. Yeah, it's just the nature so. of what humans do. Resources are limited. Even when there were a lot less people, yeah. resources were still, they were finite. Yeah, uh, look, the main, one of the points in the book is these things come in waves and we have potential opportunities to enact change at certain political junctions. We're not sure when it's going to happen or what circumstances will lead to it, but we've got to be, sort of be prepared for changes that we think will be effective yeah. for quite a while when that opportunity arises. So all the community groups lobbying for change need to really put their thinking hats on and go, oh, do I want to have real-time donations disclosure or do I want a better cooling-off period for politicians? Which one would be more effective? Mm. Do I want to um, constrain lobbying somehow or do I want to have a policy that forces you to sell additional property rights rather than give them away through the planning system? Mm. So we've got to at least push for things that are effective rather than the stories we've been told might be effective. So that's, that's sort of where I think the book can help. And it seems great because the focus so much being on being effective. Yeah. Here is the problem. Here is a practical thing. Yeah. So, so get behind this as a network and mm. grow support for that network on this issue. That's right. And so in each sector, we go around in chapters, each sector of the economy, banking, superannuation, um, public infrastructure investment, education, uh, competition regulation. And we go, well, what's the world's best practice and how did they get it? Mm. How did Norway come up with such a good oil tax? Well, they had a few stubborn bureaucrats that just happened to be there at the right time that couldn't be fired. Yep. And they didn't already have the stories in the community about how valuable no. these uh, British and American oil companies were. And they said, well, we don't have to agree to these bad conditions that the foreign oil companies want because no. the oil's going to still be there. Yep. It's they, like they, they had patriots and altruists. And yeah. guess what? You put that combo together and you get very different outcomes. Yeah. And I th- I, so I, one of my things is the stubborn bureaucrat is quite a good mechanism for <laughs> getting things done. You know, there's a, there's a book about, I don't know the guy's name, there's a book about this Norwegian um, environment bureaucrat who just dug his heels in at these meetings and said, guys, don't be bamboozled by... British BP and whatever they were called at the time, Chevron and Exxon and all the American oil companies. It's like, it, it's our oil and it's still going to be there whether they you know, agree to this or not. Mm. Maybe we should just extract it as well. Like, you don't want to be in their pockets. And, you know, that, that changed the course of, of their history. And um, perhaps that is a really good point to reinforce. And that is individuals have played very significant roles in outcomes that have made life better for whole populations and countries. Yeah, and I think they're usually the powerless. unseen ones, yeah. Yeah, we're not powerless. Yeah. you just got to hold the line in the right situation. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's right. And I, I think you have to have a clear head. I'm not really buying to a lot of the stories that the vested interests circulate in the media every day as well. That's sort yeah. of an important practice that people can get into is ignoring the stories and, like, how can that be true? I check, for example, annual reports of companies because they're obliged to be honest to their investors. Crazy, isn't Mm. it, that you can lie to the media, but you have to be honest to your investors. So you can compare those sorts of things. Well, what's also crazy is the media don't read the reports. No. The media pay attention to the press release, but don't read the reports. Yeah, they ask the spokesman for, Mm. for more information. And uncritically. And, of course, they're not trained to. But, you know, if there's a good community of experts out there you know sort of doing their little bit of public service and scrutinizing things i think that will go a long way as well brilliant 
Thank you very much, Cameron Murray, for joining us at the Sustainable Prosperity Conference. It's been a pleasure having you on Blind Insights. Thanks for having me. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Thank you.